0: Bible has been translated into over 2,000 languages as of right now, but that means there's still over two-thirds of the world's languages that still have no Bible. Two-thirds in their language. Imagine this morning not having the Bible in English. I heard, actually it was Interesting, I was thinking about this story this week before I heard about you guys, uh, Philip. And, um, and I was thinking about this precious pastor who had lost his wife and his uh, baby in, in a car accident. And he said that, uh, I remember watching his testimony, and one of the things he said was, the Bible during this time has become my best friend. He was alone in the house, but he said, the Bible has become my best friend. He said, I sleep with it under my pillow. The Bible is the word of life. It gives life to people. And I was thinking, if the Bible wasn't in English, I would have no problem going miles and miles to sit somewhere and hear the word, hear somebody read me the word. If somebody had the word somewhere, and it was the only Bible we could get to, and and they were the only ones who had it. I would, I would do whatever I could to just go listen. Um, do you love the Word this morning? Do you love the Word of God? The psalmist wrote 176 verses in one chapter, Psalm 119, speaking of the glories of the Bible, the glories of the Word of God. He couldn't contain his love for the Word of God And several of those verses I want to show you this morning real quick speak of God preserving His Word forever and to every generation. Uh, First one, Psalm 119, verse 89, Forever, O Lord, Thy Word is settled in heaven. Concerning, verse 152, Concerning Thy testimonies, I have known of old that Thou hast founded them forever. And then verse 160, Thy Word is true from the beginning And every one of thy righteous judgments endureth forever. So one thing we know this morning, and that is that God is going to make sure that His Word endures in this generation, no matter how bad things get. His Word is going to endure through this generation, and it's going to endure all the way through the next generation as well, and every one after that, if He tarries His coming. And this means that at times... What he's going to do is he's going to use humans, human ability to keep that word going. Uh, God used men in the original writing, and we call that inspiration. God inspired them. God give, God breathed out the words for them, the original writers. But God also uses human ability in another way, and that is through translation, or transmission of His word uh, throughout the whole world. How they, how shall they hear without a preacher? So whether we're preaching or we're translating the Word of God, which is a very special uh, job and a special duty, it is a powerful, powerful thing that God will use a human to do something like that. So this morning, it'd be helpful for us, I think, to see how the Bible went from God's mouth to our hands uh, in English. This is, you know, we just saw that Kimiel tribe receiving the Word of God, the New Testament, for the very first time and just how excited they were. And um, how do we get the Bible in our language? What was the path that it took? And we're going to talk about that uh, this morning. Hopefully, this, uh, this lesson this morning will answer some questions that you may have about that and then also give some appreciation for what we have in the Word of God. But hopefully also, I am hoping that it will motivate us to spread the Word to others. Now, I've racked my brain and tried to think of a way to do this, this lesson. I will say this has been one of the hardest ones to, uh, to bring into one lesson. There's so many things to talk about, really, if, if we had the time, and so many details, how to bring it all together where we can get a, a brief look at it. So by no stretch of the imagination is this going to cover everything. It's not going to be exhaustive but I hope to hit the main points for all of us. So hang in there, everybody. I think the best way to do this is to go through in a timeline uh, fashion. So I'm going to kind of quickly go through the timeline of how the Bible uh, went from God's, from God's mouth to our hands. And, uh, and then after that, we'll look at your uh, notes there and fill in what we have there. You can write notes along the way if you'd like. All right, so here we go. Let's start from the beginning, about 1500 B.C. to 500 B.C., God gives Moses the Ten Commandments and then the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible. That was about 1500 B.C. that God gave that to Moses. And then all the Old Testament books are starting to be written. They're written in the language Hebrew, and they're copied and preserved by scribes on scrolls, scribes like Ezra in the Bible. He was a scribe. And there were other faithful scribes who would just copy by hand, constantly, faithful Jewish people. They would take those, they would take the originals that they copied from, and uh, especially the very, very first originals, and what they would do is they they wanted to preserve those, and so what history tells us probably happened was they put those in jars and buried them. Uh, That's a problem because uh, they don't exist now. Uh, They probably disintegrated or they're just not found. So we do not have any of the actual original writings, as I mentioned before. Uh, But these copies are almost almost perfect copies of the originals. So between 1500 BC all the way to 500 BC, all the writings of the Old Testament are given and begin uh, to be copied. 200 BC, the Old Testament is then translated from Hebrew into Greek, 200 years before Christ. Now what happened there was Alexander the Great came on the scene and he began to conquer the known world. He was a Greek speaking person, and Greek began, the language of, of, uh, of his, his Greek began to spread into all these areas that he had conquered. And so uh, they took the Hebrew scriptures, the Jewish people, and in particular 72 Jewish scholars uh, met in Egypt, and they created a Greek translation of the Hebrew scriptures. It's called the Septuagint. The Septuagint, that comes from the word 70. Uh, for these 70 men that met. The Septuagint then was a, a, a Greek translation of the Hebrew Scriptures. And actually, Jesus and the apostles quote from the Septuagint. Now, a quick look at the Hebrew language. I just want to bring this in real quick. You know, the Semites, that is the descendants of Shem, one of Noah's sons, the Semites, invented the idea of an alphabet. And their invention of an alphabet led to the ability to be able to write a book and have a written language. So what happened was Abraham left Ur of the Chaldees. He started, God told him to leave and go to a new land. And on his journey, he uh, he came through Haran and came into Palestine. And on the way, he was encountering dozens of different Semitic languages, different uh, people up from the line of Shem that kind of had different languages. And so he, Abraham put all these together, added to his vocabulary that he already had, and then that became the Hebrew language. He passed that language then on to Isaac, on to Jacob, and that became uh, the language of the Jewish people, and still is the ancient Hebrew is for them today. They still speak it. Thousands of years later came the Greek language, and as I mentioned, Alexander the Great, uh, 400 years before Christ, spread this language all over the known world. His Greek was not, um, was not the standard literary Greek. It was actually a simplified Greek uh, called Koine Greek, Koine Greek. Uh, the Koine, the word, means common. So it was more the common man's speech. It was, and that became the perfect vehicle for God's word. It's interesting that God chose that time. People talk about how the fact that God chose that time in history because of the Romans the Roman roads that they were creating, so it made it uh, so easy for the gospel to spread on those roads that were going all over the known world. And then also the, the Greek language was uh, so spoken in so many places that the gospel could spread so easily through language as well. And so it was the perfect vehicle, the, the language of Greek, uh, language Greek. It also had a unique verb system, Greek does. And... What that actually does is help people understand the work of God in the past, but how it is still significant for today. It's, uh, it's, that's an interesting study, but uh, it's a fascinating thing that the Greek language uh, has so many unique characteristics that are perfect for, uh, for the gospel. Okay, so that was, that's what happened during those periods. Then Now we're going to stick past the time of Christ, and we're going to look at about 100 to 500 A.D., so by, one, by, by the year 100 A.D., the New Testament is completed. The last book is written, the book of Revelation, and it's completed in Greek. Then faithful people, believers, the church, people in the church, begin to preserve the New Testament, and they begin to copy it onto papyrus for the next several hundred years. Papyrus um, is made from reeds by the way, you can still make papyrus your own if you want. Uh, I saw how to do this online. You can actually make your own paper. Papyrus, uh, that's where we get our word paper. And we get a lot of our words from the Greek language. Um, So during this time period, they hand copy all those New Testament uh, documents that were passed down to them. And they begin to circulate them among all the churches. Here's what would happen. One church might get a letter from Paul, let's say. Okay, hey, we just got a letter the Galatians or, you know, Corinthians, whatever. And and we're supposed to circulate this letter. After we read it and talk about it in the church, we're supposed to take this letter and circulate it and give it to the next church in the next town, and everybody's supposed to make sure they get a turn to have the word. Well, they said, you know, before we pass it on, let's copy it. Let's make five copies. And so somebody, uh, again, just a, a scribe, would come along and then copy that. So then, they, now they would have five copies of that. They would send off the original. And pretty soon the originals uh, get put somewhere. And we don't have any of the original originals. But we have these copies. And then those copies would be copied. And pretty soon they would spread to places of other languages. And this is the amazing thing about the gospel of Jesus Christ. The, uh, the apostles and those who were in the churches would... Uh, would read. Oh, God wants us to go into all the world and preach the gospel. So they began traveling all over the world. Pretty soon, they spread to to all over and and about over a hundred different languages. began to hand copy the word of God from Greek. In those in this time period, uh, we have languages. They have manuscripts of languages from Syriac, Coptic, and Latin, and many others. So we have now what they've been able to discover is over 5,000 of those Greek hand-copied manuscripts. There's also thousands more from these other languages, Syriac, Coptic, Latin, and others. One interesting story I want to point out to you, this is fascinating, the story of Cyril and Methodius. These two are originally from Thessalonica, and the Bishop of Rome sent them to evangelize the Slavic people in the 9th century. Here's the problem, though. The Slavic people didn't have a written language. So Cyril, he designed an alphabet for them. It's called Cyrillic. And that's to it was the, for the purpose of translating the Bible into a written language for these people. But in the midst of that, he created an alphabet for them. And that is the same alphabet that the people in Russia use today. It's the, for the Russian language. And not, not only, so think about that, not only did these two brothers help the Slavic people in giving them the word of God, but they, they made a lasting contribution to their whole culture. And, and this has happened so many times throughout history. The desire to translate the Bible into somebody's language helps that culture actually obtain a written language that they never had before. Uh, the Bible has done so much for the world. Then in 400 to 900 AD, as we're moving along here, a group known as the Masoretic Jew, the Masoretic Jews, compiled these uh, manuscripts together—the Hebrew manuscripts—and carefully copied the Old Testament. So they took all the copies that they could find, they put them together, and they began to go on this incredible, incredibly careful uh, copying program. The Masoretic text of the Old Testament is a masterpiece of close to near-perfect copying. We've talked about some of the things they would do before, but they would wash their hands and sometimes even wash their bodies before they would even write the name God. It took them many years to get this thing done. If, if you're in the middle of writing the name of God and, a king, and the king walks in the door, you, sh- you don't even look up. Because you're writing the name of God, you change the pen after you're done writing the name, God's name, and get a brand new pen. I mean, there were so many careful, and they would number every word and every letter in every single chapter uh, of of the Old Testament. And so this was a, a a masterpiece of copying. And this is where we get our Old Testament scriptures. We copy from English into into English from that Hebrew that those guys copied. Matter of fact. It is the, uh, the Hebrew copy that the Jewish people use today as their scriptures. 600 then to 1600 AD is a long period, a thousand years, where the Bible then all of a sudden is restricted. It's restricted to Latin only. Who did that? The Roman Catholic Church. This period here of history is known as the Dark Ages and is one of the most horrible times in history. Uh, the, the Catholic Church was incredibly corrupt, and some of the worst persecution on believers happened in this point in history. Uh, the point is, the Catholic Church wanted to control who heard the Scriptures, uh, because if people started to read the Scriptures for themselves and know it for themselves, uh, they would begin to see how corrupt the Catholic Church was. And, and uh, that was a dangerous thing for their power. And so they restricted it to Latin only. It is not allowed, as by, dictated by the church, this, these scriptures are too holy to be, to be seen in any other language than the, than the holy language of Latin. But in the middle of this, in 1380, there was a man by the name of John Wycliffe. And this man, uh, with great courage and boldness, translated the first handwritten English language manuscript. And he took it from Latin, the, the, the Bible that they had at the time, the Latin Vulgate, and he took that and he translated it into English. Now, this guy, he was selected from a group of faithful believers. It's interesting, uh, as we've said before, at the same time the Roman Catholic Church was doing this and, and all, of, all that was happening, there were these little pockets, little believers, little churches all over the world, uh, still meeting, still believing in the Lord, still having some of the copies of the scriptures. Uh, they were not part of the Roman Catholic Church, but they were persecuted by them. Well, that's John Wycliffe. He came from a little church like that in Scotland. And he, they voted him, uh, John, you're the guy who's going to translate the scriptures and put your name on it. And uh, so he knew he, that this needed to happen, and the people needed God's word in their own language. He's, he's called the morning star of the Reformation. He really is the one who kicked it off. He believed in something called sola scriptura, Scripture only. And that was his rallying cry. We need Scripture only, not all the traditions of the church. He died in 1384 after suffering a stroke, and the Pope was so angry with this man for what he had done that he took uh, Wycliffe's translation uh, as much as he could, tried to burn those copies, but also he dug up John Wycliffe's bones and burned them. You know, there are many more precious people during this period who stood up for reforming Christendom at the time and bringing a Bible to common man. And I I want to mention at least one of them, and that is a man by the name of John Huss. In 1415, John Huss was burned at the stake for, for promoting Wycliffe's Bible. They actually used the pages of Wycliffe's Bible as kindling for the fire to burn him. But you know what that did? That only lit a fire of passion under, the, under true believers. Now more than ever, this Reformation needed to happen. And in 1450, a man by the name of John Gutenberg <clears throat> invented the printing press. And one of his main goals in doing that was to print the Word of God and make it uh, as, make a Bible as inexpensive as he could so that everybody could have one. That was his main goal, in even inventing this thing. In fact, the very first book that he printed was... A Latin Bible, and then in fifteen sixteen, uh, the scholar Erasmus compiled all these available Greek manuscripts together, and he printed them in this Greek Latin New Testament. So he takes all that he could, all the the texts that they could find, several dozen, and he compiles them and and then makes them into one volume, comparing each one and making sure. He's getting the, the best reading that he could from the original. It, this is later called the Textus Receptus, which, is, which means received text. It was called received because the people began to see that this was, this was now a Greek New Testament that was uh, received straight from the Greek manuscripts. It was received straight from the Greek rather than having a Latin copy of the Greek, and then Latin into some other language. So this is received straight from the Greek actual uh, texts, those, uh, those manuscripts. So that's 1516. One year later, uh, Martin Luther nailed the 96 Theses onto the Catholic Church door, and then the Reformation just blew up from there. And then one of the most significant things to happen in the history of the English Bible is when a man uh, by the name of Wim- William Tyndale came on the scene and he translated he completed an English translation from that Greek New Testament that Erasmus had made from all those manuscripts. so he takes the English and or he takes that Greek and he brings it into English John uh, excuse me William Tyndale was known as probably one of the most brilliant men who ever lived. he knew more languages than anybody could uh, <laughs> understand at the time and he and, and, he, and they said. Out of all the languages that he spoke and understood, he could speak them. You would almost It would sound like you're hearing it from an original speaker from that, that, that country. Um, he printed the first English New Testament based on that Textus Receptus. But unfortunately, because the Catholic Church was not happy with this, he had to go into hiding to complete his work, and he finally did. But later, the Catholic Church, they bought up all, of, they tried to buy up every copy that he was selling. And they bought them up and burned them. But then, William Tyndale just used that money to copy more Bibles. I guess their plan didn't work very well. After William Tyndale died, his assistants uh, finished the Old Testament that he had started because they, somebody ratted him out. The Catholic Church found him hiding and went out and killed him. They burned him at the stake. They strangled him and then burned him at the stake. But, uh, but the Old Testament was completed by his assistance later on. In fact, several um, English translations of the Bible were made soon after that in the 1500s. The Coverdale Bible, the Matthew Tyndale Bible, the Great Bible, and the Geneva Bible are some of them. The Great Bible, let me just say something interesting about that. The Great Bible was used in all the Anglican churches in England, the Church of England. The King... Uh, Wanted to make sure this is the Bible that was used all across England, and so he chained them to the pulpit, and uh, they would only have one copy per church, and it chained them to the pulpit, and so people would have to come and, and listen to that. Uh, the Puritans during this time used the Geneva Bible. The Geneva Bible was translated uh, by John Calvin and his team in Geneva, Switzerland. Uh, the in fact, I want to say this: the Geneva Bible was the first Bible on the shores of America. Uh, and one day I think it would be pretty cool to buy one of the pages of the Geneva Bible. You can do that. You know, that's pretty cool. I thought that would be kind of neat. Uh, the, one of the first Bibles to come to America. Well, the first Bible to come to America. That's throughout the 1500s, those English translations. And then in 1611, the King James Bible is completed. Now this Bible was different than the others. It was commissioned by King James... Uh, of England to replace the Great Bible that was chained to all the, the pulpits. And this Bible, though, would be different in that it would be without all the notes. See, when they, when they uh, copied the, uh, the Great Bible and the Geneva Bible, they put a lot of uh, translators' notes in there. And they said, you know what, this is just too, uh, we're seeing too much doctrinal influence. Let's just have a Bible without all the notes. Let's just have just straight word. And, and so that's what they that was their undertaking. 47 scholars worked for three years, and they even used, uh, at that time it was more large cap letters, but now in the King James Bible they use italicized letters to show where the translators added a word for clarity. But uh, the updates began to happen because of the spelling. I mean, back then in 1611, they spelled things far different than they spell them now. And so it took... Oh, Had a couple changes until 1769, which is the version that most people now use. The King James Bible has become the highest selling book of all time. Uh, I mean, far surpassing its billions and billions and billions of copies. Uh, Really, truly an amazing work. 1881, something happened. Uh, There was a new Greek testament to rival the Textus Receptus, uh, the one Erasmus put together. This was called, the. some people called the critical Greek New Testament. And this was compiled by a couple of guys named Westcott and Hort. And what they did is they took some manuscripts that they that people had discovered that Erasmus didn't know existed. And they took these older, these were manuscripts that were older. Now these manuscripts were discovered in the, in the Vatican. And they were also discovered near Mount Sinai. And... And since uh, these, they're actually now they're called Codex Vaticanus and Codex Sinaiticus, and they date to the 300s AD. That's hundreds of years prior to the uh, the ones that Erasmus had available to him at the time. Now, many many scholars value those these uh, uh, these manuscripts, these old manuscripts, very highly, and they say these are more accurate. Uh, than the than the ones that came later because they're they're older and that they had less time to be copied. However, not all scholars agree with that, and, um, and because all scholars actually agree that there are many errors in those manuscripts, many scribal errors, and that's everybody admits that. Uh, but still, even with all the errors and and all of that, these this particular Greek New Testament by Westcott and Hort is used. And uh, as the as the basis for the New Testament, for all of the new major English versions that have come along, except for the King James Version and the New King James Version. One more date here I want to share with you, and that is the one thousand, nine hundred and forty-seven. There was the discovery of the Dead Sea Scrolls, and these are the oldest copies of the Old Testament manuscripts. These scrolls that have been copied is the oldest find ever by a thousand years. And, uh, and these are dating to the 3rd century B.C., before Christ, and, and when they opened them up and began to read them and compare them with the, the Masoretic text, which I mentioned about the, how the Jewish scholars uh, and, the, and the scribes had copied, they matched those together with these very old copies, and they said, this is almost a perfect fit. It's absolutely incredible uh, that this, had, this could be copied so perfectly for so many thousands of years. So this is kind of how... Now that, you see, it comes through the Hebrew, comes through the Greek, and then comes to us in English. What an amazing journey this Bible has taken. But now, I'm not going to go into detail about all the different English translations. There's just not enough time uh, to do that. But people do ask all the time, which, which Bible version should we use? So I want to give two important questions to consider when you're choosing a Bible version, okay? And, or a Bible translation, And this is not only a question if you're choosing a Bible translation to read from, but there's also two important questions if you're going to become a translator. (laughs) If you're going to become a Bible translator, which I encourage you to do if uh, the Lord puts that ministry in your heart, that's a very, very needed ministry. But these are very important questions that a translator has to to answer as well. And so the first question here is... uh, Oops, what is it? There it is. The first question is, the earliest manuscripts... Or majority manuscripts? I'm going to explain this to you. And this question has to do with the New Testament manuscripts that we we use in translation. So, if you're going to take a manuscript from the past, and you're going to bring it into English, the Greek, into English, which family of manuscripts are you going to choose? Are you going to choose the Textus Receptus uh, from Erasmus from so long ago? Or are you going to do the newer ones from Westcott and Hort, the ones that they kind of put together. There's, those are the two different family of manuscripts. Now, they've discovered more since then, and many of them agree with, uh, with the Textus Receptus. So the, the big question, I guess, is which family of transcripts have less scribal errors, is what we're trying to determine, right? I mean, we want to get as close as possible to the original. So we have about 5,000 Greek manuscripts in total. The vast majority, so you have 5,000 Greek manuscripts, the vast majority of them uh, agree with the Textus Receptus, about 95% plus, even more than that. So there's really only a minor part in that stack that agree with the earlier text that Westcott and Hort use. For some... The line of reasoning is, well, I'd rather go with the majority. You have these from all different time periods coming in from everywhere. You bring them all together. And if those agree more, then this seems like most probably would be correct. And that, they now term that the majority text, the majority text. Uh, but some say that the earlier manuscript family is better because it's earlier. They, they call that the Alexandrian text. The earlier is better people would say that the, the later manuscripts have more chance for error because of all the copying, but it's not as simple as that. For example, these later manuscripts could be a copy of just one copy that, just have, that has just lasted for so long. Uh, <laughs> yes, they made a, it's a later find. Yes, it's a later date. But the one they copied from could have been a, an extremely early date. So it's only a one copy deal. And it's, it's far more likely that a scribe who is copying would accidentally leave something out rather than add something. Scribes aren't going to add to the Word of God, typically. I mean, very rare that you would ever see a scribe adding something to the Word of God if he takes it as the Word of God. And it's interesting that the older manuscripts in the Alexandrian text, the Westcott and Hort text, are shorter. Even several verses missing and there are even half chapters missing in those older ones that are, not, that are actually there. So that's strange and odd. And there is proof showing that the, uh, that the early manuscripts, the, the ones they found in the Vatican and, and, and on, in Sinai, are, had many, many scribal errors to begin with. Even the early writers, church fathers, said that, that these manuscripts have many errors. So my personal opinion if you're interested, is that, is that I lean toward the majority text. I think it's safer in the majority. Uh, and this is basically, though, only leaves the King James Version or the New King James Version, because those are the only ones that come into that, from that family of manuscripts. But let me say this. The two different family of manuscripts only differ in about 2% of places. Okay? Even the two, but, and most just very insignificant things. Very insignificant. Commas. Spellings, uh, little, little things like that. But there are a few significant differences. And, however, I do want to say this, that all major Christian doctrines are still intact in both manuscript families. Okay, so in my personal Bible reading, I sometimes use a parallel Bible with the King James Version and then three other versions. And I'll look at the King James Version as the closest that I can see to the Word of God. Use those, these others as study helps along the way with modern phrasing. And I think that could be a big help in getting a grasp on, on a certain passages. But the next important question has to do with how the words are translated from Hebrew or Greek into English. Real quick. We all understand that a rigid, literal translation wouldn't work, right? Here's how John 3.16 would be written in a very rigid way. If you're just word for word, in the right in that order. Thus, for he loved the God, the world... That the Son, the only begotten, he gave in order that everyone, the one believing into him, not may perish but have life everlasting. Mm -hmm. That's how it would read if it was just word for word, you're just copying right away. Obviously, that's not going to work. You have to change the order and you have to use methods to make it come out correct. So, there's a method called formal equivalence or dynamic equivalence. I don't have time to unwrap this whole thing, but I do want to give you this. Formal equivalence means to translate word for word in a way that's literal and yet suitable. For the new language it's literal it's word for word however it is suitable so you have to change it and you have to think through that the dynamic equivalents basically translate thought for thought and they want to convey the meaning and not necessarily the wording uh, one example is in first peter 1 it says gird up the loins of your mind in the, in the king james version gird up the loins of your mind Well, your mind doesn't have loins um, So, But the King James Version and literal translations like that, American Standard Version, Young's Literal Translation, the New American Bible, New King James, they translate it literal and just keep it there and let the reader decide how to uh, interpret that. And the other versions, and even some of the more literal translations, like English Standard Version, they say preparing your minds for action. So the translator said, we'll just go ahead and translate that, what that means for them, for the reader, Uh, And the American Standard Bible recently changed it to that as well. But a worse problem really is a thought-for-thought translation is not good because eventually, if you go too far, too far, it can become like a paraphrase. And the translators are doing all your thinking for you. And that's dangerous. But for all these versions, I just want you to hear me, it's really a scale. The dynamic, the formal equivalence, word-for-word, dynamic equivalence, thought-for-thought and they're kind of in a scale. And people have different opinions on which English version fits different places. But I would rather deal, personally, how I view it is, I'd rather deal with the difficulty myself. I'd rather have a formal equivalence translation and then study for myself because I want just what the word says and I don't want somebody else doing my thinking for me. I don't mind accessing study helps but I, I, I want to not be influenced as much as possible. I want to try to hear like I'm hearing from God. This is another reason that we prefer the King James or the New King James. So there's so much on this topic. But all in all, it's my opinion that God does use all types of translations to help people get saved and grow in their relationship with the Lord. As it's important, though, that we choose an accurate translation So that we can be confident that we're hearing from the Lord. Because the living word of God is what this generation needs so desperately. It needs the word of God. The devil is throwing every weapon possible at this book. Every weapon. I've been saying for 10 to 15 years that the greatest battle of my generation of pastors is going to be the battle to compromise on God's word in the area of homosexuality. And... Oh, my goodness, compromises everywhere and churches everywhere. And I think of the world that my children are going to grow up in, and the one thing I can thank God is that His Word will still be there. And as long as there's somebody who takes it seriously and says, this is the Word of God, I I can do no other. I can't do anything else. I have to stand on this Word. Then we're going to be okay. Uh, But we all need to stand together on the pure Word of God. Let's pray.